You're listening to a UCD Humanities Institute podcast. This podcast series features recordings of lectures, seminars and events hosted by or associated with the University College Dublin Humanities Institute. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities. This podcast features a panel from Transnational Humanities, Concept and Praxis, the 2021 UCD Humanities Institute PhD Conference. This online conference took place on the 19th of February. This podcast features panel three, Migration, Stateness, Politicality. The speakers in this panel were Tim Muehlmans from University of Antwerp, who presented on Transnational Law and the Challenge to National Sovereignty, and Daniel Ja from Chilean University, who presented on Transnationalism and Liberal Political Philosophy of Migration. The panel was chaired by Zikyun Zhang from University College Dublin. Uh, Tim is a PhD student at the University of Antwerp, Belgium, where he also obtained his bachelor's and master's degrees in philosophy. He has special interests goes on to the effect that the proliferation of universal human rights has on the concepts of justice and sovereignty. As a Belgian Air Force officer, he had the opportunity to walk abroad and engage with many African and European cultures. Welcome, Tim. Hi, ladies and gentlemen, good afternoon. Thank you for offering me the opportunity to speak to you here today. The topic of my PhD dissertation is the evolving relationship between human rights and the political. From an Arendian point of view, I investigate the contemporary justification, development and application of human rights and look into the consequences this has for the political. The paper I'm about to present to you touches upon one issue which emerged during my research. So, during the next 15 minutes, I will explain to you why transnational law challenges national sovereignty and therefore puts pressure on the relationship between law and democracy. The main topic of the discussion I will present is whether judges are expanding the principle of the rule of law beyond the framework of legal principle and are thereby replacing political authority by judicial ruling. The underlying issue here is the question until what point can a ruling by an international court replace the ruling of a national court based on national legislation or the decision of a national political body. First, I will provide you with a brief summary of the evolution of the European Court of Human Rights. Then I will elucidate the two main position, positions in the debates and finally I will discuss an actual court ruling to illustrate the matter at issue. Let's start with the evolution of the European Court in a nutshell. The European Convention on Human Rights is generally considered to be the most successful expression of a transnational judicial protection of human rights in the world. Nevertheless, the legitimacy of the European Court of Human Rights is not uncontested. Originally established in 1959 as a post-war interstate early warning system, 
to avoid the horrors which were committed by the Nazis during the Second World War. It evolved into a court which will examine every individual complaint concerning an infringement on what is considered to be a human right. As the convention was drafted in 1950, it doesn't contain clear-cut answers to every modern-day problem or alleged human right infringement. So, the court considered the convention to be a living instrument. This means that the court interprets the convention in the light of contemporary society so that, it, so that it can be adapted to today's context. Furthermore, the European Court has adopted its own rules for autonomously determining the meaning of the concepts within the convention, independent of the content of equivalent concepts in national law. As a result, the court expanded its scope of review and the associated areas of interest, thereby augmenting its judicial impact onto member states. This increased scope and impact have led to the critique that there's an imbalance between law and democracy, as the court is overstepping the boundaries of the convention and is becoming more and more a legislator instead of a judicial body. Okay, let's now move to the two positions in the debate. On the one hand, we have those who favor the primacy of democracy. They look upon law as part of a public decision-making process. The relation between law and politics is one of cooperation. Representative politics assure that state acts are legitimate and accommodate differences among people due to the decision-making process in which the view of the national interest after debate prevails over the individual opinion. The judge within the existing framework of legal principle will exercise his power without trespassing on the functions of parliament and the executive. It's the court's task to assure that the government won't abuse its power. Today, however, the courts have taken over the legitimative function of the political decision-making process in a democratic society and have, by doing that, obtained legislative and ministerial power. Fundamental law overrides the ordinary processes of political decision-making. Courts apply the principle of legitimacy to define the norms, called fundamental law, to declare an action legitimate or not. As these fundamental human rights have a higher status than ordinary laws, they cannot be cancelled by a legitimate political decision. On the other hand, there are the adherents of fundamental law. To them, law is a mechanism in which certain fundamental rights were given a normative status limiting majority rule. The role of judges is to assist society in not losing sight of its consensus principles and to continue to sustain the true and inclusive democratic character of society. In what they describe as a true democracy, law and politics are entwined as the legitimate exercise of political power must always be regulated by law. In Europe, fundamental rights with normative status, which can be described as values, limit majority rule. Independent and impartial judges have to provide the legitimacy of the political process and the separation of powers. So, the role of judges is to assist society in not losing sight of its consensus principles and to continue to sustain the true and inclusive democratic character of society.
All right, so far for the theory. Let's now have a look at a 2008 court ruling to illustrate that the criticisms addressed to the court shouldn't be discarded without consideration. Let's start with the facts. In the case EB versus France, a French homosexual woman, Mrs. B, wanted to adopt a foreign child. She was not married, but in a stable relationship, although her partner didn't feel committed by Mrs. B's wish to adopt. The administrative French courts, having the best interest of the child in mind, refused her application on two grounds. The first one was lack of paternal or maternal reference in her circle of family and friends. And the second ground was the ambivalence of the commitment of each member of the household to the adoptive child. Having exhausted the French judicial system, she appealed to the European Court of Human Rights as she pleaded that the refusal was based on her homosexuality and was therefore an infringement on Article 14, prohibition of discrimination, in conjunction with Article 8, right to respect of private and family life of the European Convention of Human Rights. The court's grand chamber, basing itself on the living instrument doctrine, held that there had been a violation of the aforementioned articles by 10 votes to 7, thus establishing the human right for a single homosexual person to be entitled to adopt a child. The court overruled the French Conseil d'État, which had confirmed the previous rulings based on French law. The European Court decided that although national courts had stressed that her sexual orientation had not been the basis of their judgment, the reference to her homosexuality was at least implicit. In its judgment, the Grand Chamber said that it didn't contest the second ground, but stated that the first ground might have led to an arbitrary refusal. This meant that the Grand Chamber ignored French law and political decisions and issued a ruling overturning its own previous ruling on the matter from Frété versus France. As no margin of appreciation was applied in the judgment, the court issued a blanket ruling impacting all member states in the same manner. Okay. This judgment is quite remarkable and thus forms a good illustration of the frictions which can occur between transnational law and national sovereignty when boundaries are not clear or respected and when the judges want to uphold a value rather than collaborate with, with the political decision makers to find a solution suitable to all. To illustrate this, I will compare the case of EB versus France against the case it overturned, Frété versus France. Only six years prior, in 2002, in the similar case Frété versus France, the court had ruled in favor of France. The court had observed that the convention did not guarantee the right to adopt, but that the right to respect for family life presupposed the existence of a family. Article 8 did not protect the mere desire to start a family. Secondly, the court confirmed that the decisions refusing adoption pursued a legitimate aim, namely the protection of the health and the rights of children concerned by an adoption procedure, as mentioned in French law. Thirdly, because the question raised 
concerned areas in which there was very little common ground between the member states. A wide margin of appreciation was given to the authorities of each state as they are more in touch with the sentiments within their respective countries and as such better placed than an international court to evaluate local needs and conditions. Furthermore, the court noted division within the scientific community and wide differences in public opinion. As a result, the court refrained, refrained sorry, from imposing its will upon the member states and issued a balanced judgment circumscribing the right to be able to adopt by the interests of adoptable children. This subtle equilibrium was quashed by the ruling in EB versus France. The Grand Chamber ruled in Mrs. B's favor solely because of a presumed discrimination based on her sexuality. This judgment was entirely based upon the first ground. When Mrs. B started the adoption procedure, French law already allowed a single person, regardless of sexual orientation, to adopt a child. French lawmakers gave priority to the child's best interests. Therefore, they incorporated some guarantees to be met. One being the first ground, having a member of the opposite sex among their circle of family and friends. Although this condition may seem strange, perhaps even illegal, it's not by definition an expression of homophobic discrimination. Only taking one ground into consideration, the second one, the court acted as a court of cassation, a role which is not foreseen, and overruled the decision of the French Conseil d'État. It's puzzling why the court didn't take the second ground more into consideration. This ground was not even disputed by the court and, in itself, justified the French de decision to refuse an authorization to adopt. As the court clearly said, there was no evidence that the second ground was based on her sexual orientation. So the French key objection was not the absence of someone, but the presence in the household of a partner who clearly did not wish to take on a parental role. And there's a strong case for saying that someone whose long-term partner is unwilling to join in should not be allowed to proceed. So to summarize, the court's ruling was based on a non-established but possible discrimination of the first ground and completely ignored the second legally validated ground. Instead of putting the child's interests first, this isn't mentioned once in the court's assessment and judgment, the court apparently just looked at the rights of the applicant. Frette versus France can exemplify the role the European Court has as part of a democratic system of constitutional mechanisms, working in balance with the national legislations and leaving room for variations between the different member states. EP versus France, on the contrary, is an expression of democracy as being a system of values. These values don't belong to a public decision-making process. Consequentially, the choices made or decisions taken by elected representatives are only legitimate within the limits set by these values, which are determined by the European Court. As a result, political democracy has to operate within an undefined, volatile framework of values, which depends upon the interpretation of the law provided by non-elected specialists, in casu, judges of the court itself whose decisions affect the lives of hundreds of millions of people who can't hold them accountable for their actions. 
This undermines the sovereignty of the states as the European court takes critical decision-making powers out of the political process and instead imposes non-consensual legislation upon the member states, going beyond what is legitimate in a democracy and overstepping the convention's intent. And although Justice Pano, the current president of the European Court of Human Rights, wants to place more trust on national authorities by applying the margin of appreciation, I think more should be done. The court does not question its way of conduct itself. It just tries to find a better modus vivendi. Perhaps sometimes when its competence is unclear or at least susceptible to, to doubt, it should refrain from issuing a judgment. In a time marked by human rights proliferation, marked by an increasing number of non-consensual values imposed by judges upon the political sphere, I think that the European Court should recognize that we are concerned with a matter of constitutional competence. That is, whether the court has the right to intervene in matters on which member states of the Council of Europe have not explicitly surrendered their sovereign powers and impose its self-declared values upon them. And it's time to start this debate within the Council of Europe. Thank you very much. Thank you, Dean. Thank you, Dean. <clears throat> wonderful, wonderful. Okay, uh, let's move on to our last speaker. Our last speaker is Daniel Dash. Daniel Dash is a PhD candidate at uh, Tulo University in France. His research interests are, the, are in social and political philosophy with a special focus on migration aesthetics. Hello everyone, my name is Daniel Cha from Tulane University and I'm going to be presenting on transnationalism and normative political philosophy of migration. So to begin my presentation, I want to highlight two conceptual approaches in normative political philosophy of migration. And uh, there's methodological nationalism which is defined by Alex Sager as a cognitive bias in which researchers take the nation state as their unit of analysis. Right? And then there's unreason, which defined by Philip Cole, or at least highlighted by Philip Cole, suggests central role of arbitrary and contingent features in philosophical debates about migration. And so if these two conceptual approaches that inform the myth of political philosophy of migration, they dominate debates in political philosophy of migration. As a major result of these two approaches, this is essentially the appeal to self-determination. You find that any approach that takes mythological nationalism or unreason makes this appeal to self-determination. And self-determination it's essentially the analogy between individual autonomy and collective autonomy. And to say that a self is determining is to suggest that it has some level of autonomy. Right? So the self has an entitlement or a right to exercise autonomy over matters that affect it. Right? So if an individual is self-determining, she's free to make decisions, she has a right to control matters that affect her life. Right? On this logic, national or nation state self-determination 
suggests that a nation state should have control over matters that affect it, right? So in the context of immigration, a nation state must have control over the parameters of membership in order to be self-determinant and has to have this control. And so it must have a right to exclude or include non-citizens. Right? These are sort of the core ideas behind the appeal to self-determination and the debates on immigration ethics and political philosophy. So what are some results of this appeal to self-determination? I'll provide a list. I think first you have imagined distinct national identities, right? You have citizens versus non-citizens. And you see this in Walzer and in Blake. You have a zero-sum game in immigration where migration means one nation state loses and another gains. And this comes out in the high-skilled immigration debate, or the brain drain debate, as it's popularly called. You have Karen Oberman and Laura Ferrasioli pushing this sort of approach. And then there's a tendency towards othering of the migrant and accompanying religious and cultural discrimination. And, um, this comes out in varying degrees in Miller, in David Miller, Strangers in Our Midst, his 2016 book. And then fourth, there's a violation of all affected interests, right? So Christopher, Christopher Wellman is one of the very first people who make this appeal to self-determination. And one of the results is that we don't need to justify immigration policy to um, people that it might affect, right? Non-citizens, essentially. And what this does is violate all affected interests, right? Non-citizens have an interest in immigration policy as it affects them. and so their interests have to be taken into account, but under appeals to self-determination, there's no reason why this has to be the case. And in fifth, we have an increasingly conservatism about cosmopolitanism, right? There's increasing conservatism about cosmopolitanism. And Miller, again, in his 2016 book, seems to move in this direction, right? He limits how much cosmopolitanism we can actually incorporate into political philosophy of migration. Sixth, we have an inconsistent maneuvering in the justification of coercion. We see this in um, Gillian Brock, Gillian Block in her Gillian Brock, sorry, in her 2015 book she co-authored with Michael Blake. And then we see that in Laura Ferrisoli also in her 2015 article exercising or explaining, sorry, explaining why the brain drain is um, a bad phenomenon that needs to be addressed. And the justification makes this appeal to self-determination. The result of each of these accounts is the violation of liberal moral equality, essentially, right? And I'll, I'll get into highlighting the details of this in a minute. But if we have all of these results, all of these features, I believe that there's a strong violation of liberal moral equality. Right. Now, we can then now begin to understand the important challenge that conceptions or concepts of transnationalism present to these dominant approaches and especially their appeal to self-determination. So here's my narrow definition that I believe works in this critique. Right. So 
Transnationals are individuals whose citizenship and national belonging span across more than one nation state. And their national identity extends over multiple nations and political communities. I think more precisely, these are people who hold multiple citizenships and are engaged in social, political, and economic issues and movements and interactions in multiple nations. And these are people who find a deep sense of belonging beyond a single nation state. All right. So transnationalism reveals further flaws of their appeal to self-determination, right? And I'll highlight two flaws here to make my point. First, transnationalism, by putting more emphasis on the erroneous transition from individual will to collective will, right, shows one of these flaws of the appeal to self-determination. Right? Um, what we see then is that in the example I present here about the case of multiple dipping in the collective will, we see that there's a flaw in appeal to self-determination that this is the case, that there can be a case of multiple dipping in the collective world. And this is what happens with transnationals. Um, let me explain further. Essentially, what I mean is that we have an absurdity when we consider the fact that a transnational has multiple citizenship or has political belonging in multiple political communities, right? If we understand that an individual will can be translated into collective will. So individual wills can be aggregated into a collective will. Then a transnational presents a problem, right? Self-determination seems to support the conclusion that she can contribute or be part of opposing decisions from these collective wills. Okay, so her individual will is aggregated in one political community, and then it can be aggregated in another political community. Obviously, there's a possibility that the collective will in one community can be contradictory to the collective will in another community. And so transnationalism shows how this becomes a problem or how this is absurd. So for instance, you can select um, public choices, you can, you can select um, public policy A, in one political community as part of the collective will of that society and then select not A, right, the opposite of A in another political community. This undermines the strength of self-determination, right, because self-determination depends on individual wills with a distinct loyalty to one collective. But here we have transnationals who show that individual wills may be multiply determinant and self-determination of a collective. Right? This is the direct opposite of what the value of self-determination is purported to show. Right? Um, I think a second flaw that is revealed is that we have suggested aggregation of individual preferences into a social preference. Right? This is essentially what individual will transitioned into collective will means. Right, try to aggregate individual preferences into social preference. But transnationalism reveals the flaws of this. And this comes out clearly when 
consider social choice theory and arrows theorem in particular, right? where the reality of a dictator and oligarchy is revealed. Right? For people familiar with these economic concepts or in political science, people who work in voting theory or democratic theory might be more familiar with this. Um, not so much political philosophers, unfortunately, but what this flaw really points to is that if we think of democracy as aggregating individual wills or preference orderings, as they are called, into a social will or into a social preference, uh, social welfare function is one of the formulas for achieving this aggregation, for achieving this aggregation. Now, what Arrow's theorem does brilliantly is to show that there's no social welfare function, there's no formula that meets a number of reasonable con conditions that we should accept for social choice. I, mean, I won't get into the details of these conditions, but essentially we can uncover an individual's preference that commits us to her preferred social preference. Right? We will essentially produce social choice as determined by a dictator, this individual whose, whose individual preferences become a social preference. Decision-making power can be concentrated in one person or in a subgroup in the case of an oligarchy. I'll just summarize what's going on here just for clarity, right? So Iris theorem reviews that one individual can have sole power to make social choice between two options, right? Her individual preference becomes a social preference even if no one agrees. And obviously, this suggests that this person is a dictator, right? Now consider, for instance, that states can have dual citizens who are allowed to vote in elections in different countries, right? Now, the threat of a social preference being determined by individuals with these multiple roles in multiple societies become real when we consider ours, theory. We have a sort of reductio, right? A, a, a proven absurd between appealing to self-determination on the basis of a collection of individual preferences for social preference, we see a flaw immediately, right? An individual preference can become the social preference if we allow this aggregation of individual preferences, as Arrow's theorem reveals. Right. So if we accept um, the way I've demonstrated that there are flaws in the appeal to self-determination. We have demonstrated that transnationalism reveals these two major flaws. What would be your contribution to normative political philosophy of migration? What is the usefulness of transnationalism in many ways? Right, so first we'll discard methodological nationalism and unreason in our understanding of national identity and belonging when we theorize about migration and migrants, and we discard these two conceptual approaches. Second, the power of the nation state, which is essentially reducible to a subset decision-making collective, right? in most cases the government, loses its conceptual grip on normative theorizing about migration and political philosophy particularly. And then third, we move ever closer to a critical cosmopolitanism that values human beings qua human beings and not human beings qua citizens. Now, that in summary, 
fundamental liberal values of moral equality is more likely to be preserved once we see the flaws in abuses of determination transnationalism reveals these flaws to us and demands an immediate shift from methodological nationalism and unreason in normative political philosophy thank you Thanks for listening to this UCD Humanities Institute podcast. Our podcasts are available on Apple, Spotify, and on SoundCloud. For more information and to listen to hundreds of podcasts, go to ucd.ie forward slash humanities.